Well, if you have a Bible this morning, let's open up to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And if you've been hanging around here long enough, or if this is your first week with us, we're glad that you're here. Normally what we do is we'll take a particular, you know, book of Scripture and we'll just kind of unpack it for multiple weeks along the way, verse by verse. And what we're doing in kind of the lead up to the Advent series, kind of from now until the beginning of the year, is we're taking just a, a few weeks uh, and looking at what the grace-shaped life looks like, and then we'll get into our Advent series, which is going to kind of center around the hymn, Comfort, Comfort, Ye My People. And you'll see on the front of your bulletin there that you've got <clears throat> the, the question one and two to the Heidelberg Catechism that are there printed, and that's kind of what we're basing this little mini short series around. And you'll see those three categories there, guilt, grace, and gratitude. And you'll see that first question, what is your only comfort in life and death? And in Heidelberg Catechism question, the answer to that is actually much longer than that, but this is the beginning, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So what is your comfort? That I am not my own, that I'm not my own, I belong with everything that I have to my faithful Savior, Jesus. Then the second question asks, okay, well, if that's true, well, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of that comfort? And it says three things here. First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from my, all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to be thankful for God to God for such deliverance. So that's where guilt, grace, and gratitude. We talked about guilt last week. We're going to talk about grace this week. And so let's open up to Romans chapter 3. Again, if you have no idea where Romans is, that's okay. Feel free to use the table of contents. We're in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. You'll be there. It's a letter of Paul. We'll be in chapter 3, so look for the big number 3 if you don't know how to get to stuff in the Bible. And then look for the little number 21. That's the verse where we're going to start this morning. And while you're turning there, in classic Latham fashion, let me tell you a story. I may have told the story before. After a while, you forget what I've covered. But hopefully, if you're anything like me, you forgot what you had for breakfast yesterday. And so maybe this will be new to you. But a few years ago, I went to a Chinese restaurant a few blocks from the church where I was working out of when I was in RUF to grab something to eat and then to pick up an empty takeout box for an illustration on campus. So I was going to you know, illustrate something, and I needed, I needed the box. And it had been a busy day. I'd not had time to eat lunch. You may have had times like that where you just kind of keep working, and you look at your clock, and it's 2.30 or 3, and you realize you haven't eaten any lunch yet, and that was where I had, had been. And I was... Um, I was, I was famished, as you can imagine, and by the time I got to the restaurant, uh, there was a Chinese restaurant nearby, and I needed the box. It was 3.02 p.m. Make note of the time, 3.02. I walked up to the counter, and I noticed that the lunch special ran from 12 to 3, and so I ordered that. There was only one other person in the restaurant at the time, and so I'm like, ah, you know, I'm close enough. That's 3.02. Hopefully, I can get the, hopefully I can get the, uh, the lunch deal, because it's a pretty good deal. And I was promptly told by the cashier that lunch was over and that I would have to order from the full price menu. And despite my best efforts to persuade her, my efforts proved uh, not fruitful and she was unyielding. And I wanted a little grace, but she did not budge. And as you can imagine, I did not like that. I'm like, I'm the only person in here. We're two minutes after lunch. I mean, come on, you know, I almost walked out. But the problem was I needed the takeout box. I, that's the whole reason I went there. And so I went ahead and ordered, and then she charged me for the box too, on top of it. 
In those moments, I mean, it, you've probably had a similar experience like that. It, it's always hard when we run into an unyielding person because we want to be shown a little grace, right, when we come up short. We all want to be shown a little grace when we come up short, even if just two minutes past lunch. I mean, come on, it was just two minutes. There's another illustration of this kind of kind of hitting up against kind of an unyielding person or force. And you may remember this from 1994. If not, then I'm about to tell you the story, okay? There was an American teenager named Michael Fay who was living in Singapore at the time. And he was caught vandalizing cars. And the sentence uh, at the time that was applied kind of evenly was to be publicly caned. What they did was they took a four foot long, about, you know, half inch thick, Retain, like water-soaked rattan cane. And what they would do is they would kind of, you know, bend you over and they would publicly cane you with six strokes across your bare buttocks, which left you bloody and badly bruised, as you can imagine. And this was a common punishment in Singapore for nonviolent crimes, but people in America were outraged and they urged the president at the time, President Clinton, to contact the leader of Singapore, which he did, the leader told Clinton that Michael was receiving the standard punishment for his crime, and despite Clinton's best efforts, Michael was publicly caned, although out of deference to the American president, they knocked two strokes off. So instead of getting six, he got four. You can imagine that probably wasn't any better. But he was guilty, the law was on the books, and the law was swiftly applied. And we look at the letter to Romans, Romans 1 through 3, up until this verse that we're about to start in, is basically a sweeping indictment of the sin of humanity against the holy law of God. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We talked about that last week. And we see Romans 1 through 3, the sweeping indictment of humanity's sin under the law and the weight of God's wrath. And basically what Paul is doing is building the argument that there is none of us who can wiggle out of it. That we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all stand condemned under his holy law. And there's none of us that can wiggle out. And last week we talked about God's holiness and how it reveals our sin. And his, and his perfect law shows us how crooked that we really are. That none of us meet the standard on our own merit. But we can do a really good job of fooling ourselves into thinking that we can do it all on our own. We looked at Luke 18 last week and we saw the contrast between the Pharisee who trusted in his own righteousness and the tax collector who recognized his inability to save himself and cried out to God. And you can remember just, the, just the, what a short, profound prayer that he offered. He said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. That's it. The standard was the same for both, though. The law of God, which both of them were guilty of transgressing, just like every single one of us. And so, I want you to put yourself in Michael Fay's shoes for a moment. Okay, the guy who got caned. Put yourself in his shoes for a, mo for a moment and imagine that cane coming back. It is poised to inflict the punishing strokes that you rightly deserve for breaking the law of God. You have broken it, your guilt is not in question, and the punishment is about to be swiftly dealt out. And you can almost kind of feel, you can almost kind of hear the, the whip of that thing coming back. And put yourself in his shoes and imagine getting ready to endure those punishing strokes that you rightly deserve for breaking God's law until it doesn't happen. 
In his commentary on Romans, Australian pastor and New Testament scholar Leon Morris called what we are about to read, quote, possibly the most important paragraph written, end quote. Well, let's find out what he meant. Pretty, pretty high praise indeed. Let's see what he meant. Let's look at Romans chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 21 this morning, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. Remember, up until this point, it's just been a sweeping indictment. We're all guilty of transgressing the law of God. Every one of us. Look what happens. There's good news here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, We uphold the law. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I'm grateful for that, and I hope you are as well. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to this important passage this morning. Let's pray. Lord, be with us now as we come to you. Help us to see again, O Lord, maybe with fresh eyes, that we're the bad guy in the story, but as we even dwell upon that, we will run and flee to Christ. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would please take these words Uh, Apply them to our hearts. Speak through, Lord, this very flawed man up front. And we pray, O Lord, that you would, everything that is said that is true would be quickly, would be remembered, and all that is said that is not would be quickly forgotten. Lord, help us to be faithful to you in all that we do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we look at this topic this morning or this passage, this really important passage, especially in the letter of Romans, it's kind of a hinge point. Uh, in the letter to Romans, if you've ever read that before. And the big theological topic that we're discussing this morning is the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. It is an absolute core doctrine. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And Westminster Shorter Catechism 33 gives us a great, helpful kind of working definition of what this justification looked like. Looks like basically the, the bits and pieces of the definition are we are declared righteous by a sovereign act of God's free grace where he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight because of the righteousness of Christ credited to us and received by faith alone. The big idea of this is it is a gift. It is a gift. That means it's undeserved. It is a gift of God. And according to the Heidelberg Catechism, we need to know three things to live a life of joy in the comfort of knowing that we are hidden in Christ. We need to, again, remember how great our sins and miseries are, which we talked about last week. How we are delivered from our sin, that's today. 
And then next week, how we live a life of gratitude in response to that. That's where we're going next week. And so the big question that we're going to ask this morning is, why does this one gift matter so much? Why does this one gift matter so much? We're going to see two things. Number one, it gives us a new righteousness, a new righteousness. Number two, we're going to see that it gives us a new relationship. So a new righteousness and a new relationship. Those are our two things. Let's dive right in. The first thing that this passage talks about is it gives us a new righteousness, justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Years ago, I remember being in the kitchen trying to, you know, fix something or, you know, clean something up. And basically what I did, this will come as no surprise, I made a huge mess. Huge mess. Dropped something, spilled it everywhere. And I remember just sitting there, it had already been just one of those terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. You ever had one of those? So this was just like icing on the cake. So it's already been a tough day. And then here I have just made a mess of literally everything, and I just kind of came unglued. My wife, Rebecca, looked at me. She saw what was going on, and she said, go sit down, I'll handle it. That was the only response. Just go, go sit down. I got this. I'll handle it. And when you look at your own attempts to save yourself, I bet you look a lot like me in the kitchen. Worn out, at your wit's end, unable to clean up the mess that you've made because you're so exhausted and just looking for anything to help you hang on. Just give me one, just give me a word. Give me something to hang on to. And life in a fallen world is hard and the Heidelberg Catechism calls it a life of sin and misery. And under the law, God demands 100% perfection to be declared righteous in His sight. And it's crushing because nobody can do it. Nobody can do it. We feel the weight of that. And that's why verse 21 is such good news because God steps in and essentially says, let me handle it. I got it. Paul now says that the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. And that it's, not, it's, it's now found not in perfect law keeping, but through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What he's talking about is an alien righteousness, not little green men from Mars, not that kind of alien, but alien meaning that it is completely outside of yourself, this outside of yourself righteousness that belongs entirely to someone else. Why do we need this new righteousness? Look at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, who's not in the all? Nobody. You're thinking, well, that's not me. <laughs> yeah, right. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's me. That's you. That's everybody. A sweeping indictment. That's why we need this new righteousness, because we don't have a righteousness in and of ourselves. We don't. And so what happens when we stop trusting in our own efforts to save ourselves and start, start trusting in what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross? Look at verse 24. But they're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. They're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And what does this look like? Again, I probably told this story before, but you probably forgot it. What's that look like? What's it look like to have this alien righteousness at work that's outside of ourselves and we receive this thing as a gift? There's a guy named Dickie Simpkins, perhaps unknown to most, actually has more NBA championships than all the megastars, Barkley, LeBron, etc. 
He won all three with the Chicago Bulls from 96 to 98. You remember that run when they made? When it was, you know, it was Jordan and Pippen and they just could not do wrong. They were just running roughshod over people. Yet in 96 and 97, Dickie Simpkins scored zero points, had zero rebounds, zero assists, zero blocks, zero steals in the entire playoff run. Why? You probably guessed it. He played zero minutes. Yet his ring is the same cut. It's the same quality. It's the same design as Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. Now why? You think, that's not fair. He didn't play any. Why should he get a ring? Okay, he was on the team. And he benefited from their work, their sweat, their effort. He's a champion in the record books, though in the playoff run he contributed nothing, but he was still a part of the team. And so in similar fashion, we think about this justification by grace alone. Justification says to us that we bring nothing to the table, and yet we are counted righteous through the efforts and work and obedience of another, Jesus Christ the Righteous. Theologically, Christians trust in Christ's active and passive obedience. He obeyed the law's demand perfectly, his active obedience. And he was obedient to the Father, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, his passive obedience. Theologically, Christians trust in that. And that's what that word propitiation means in verse 25. He was an appeaser of God's wrath. That wrath had to come because of sin. God could not wink at sin. It had to be dealt with. His holiness demanded it. And Christ, Christ alone becomes a propitiation of God's wrath, this appeaser of God's wrath. It was poured out upon him. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to the very dregs on the cross. I have no idea what that feels like, and neither do you. And I hope by God's grace that you'll never have to experience that because of what Christ has done. And we've all heard the modern hymn in Christ Alone. It's a great hymn that people rally around and sing. They have these lyrics, Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. You may have heard several, several, several now years ago, a mainline denomination actually petitioned Keith and Kristen Getty to allow them to include that song in their hymnal, which would be published, and you know you get royalties for that. And, but the only thing they asked was, would you allow us to please soften that verse on God's wrath? If you'll let us do that, we'll put it in our hymn book, you know, this will go around. Their suggested change was, instead of saying the wrath of God was satisfied, they wanted to say the love of God was magnified. Thankfully, the Gettys rightly refused because it cut out the beating heart of the gospel, which is substitutionary atonement. And because of that, that hymn was not put in that mainline denomination's book. But we're grateful that the Gettys saw the importance of the wrath of God being satisfied in Christ. Now, I get it. I get it. At this point, you're rolling your eyes and going, Dave, who cares? It's so easy to roll your eyes and talk about how the church is a mess and that we divide over the dumbest things in denominations. I get it. I used to say that stuff when I was in undergrad. I get it. I get it. You're like, Dave, who cares? It seems like such a small little thing. But think about it. If God's wrath did not exist, and if humanity is not guilty under God's law, then Jesus died a gruesome death for no reason. If the bad news is not true, then, then Jesus died for nothing. That's why it matters. 
And you talk about something that I will go to the mat for every single day, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is not something that we roll our eyes over. It is not just this preacher being nitpicky and why can't we get over it. It is absolutely the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel. I'll die on this hill every day. Some of y'all think I die on every hill. I really don't. I promise I don't. There's lots of stuff I hear. I'm like, that's okay. This one? No. No. Never. Never. It matters. What that would mean is that if, if God's wrath didn't exist, if humanity was not guilty under God's law, not only did Jesus die a gruesome death for no reason, that would also mean that there would be no ultimate justice for evil people who unapologetically commit evil acts and then go to the grave boasting about it. Is that the world you want to live in? A world where you know God just kind of winks and turns his eyes at e the evilness and wickedness of men and never deals with it? This kind of like impotent hand cream God that doesn't deal with things. He's just nice and let's just be nice and everything's nice. Is that the kind of world you want to live in where God does not take sin seriously? God's holiness is actually magnified when he justly deals with sin. And the thing is, God never brushed sin under the rug. His holiness demanded that it be punished. He just looked at the mess that we all made in our own sin and he said, let me handle it. And aren't you glad? Don't miss that Exodus language at the end of verse 25 where it talks about God passing over former sins. That God sent the angel of death to kill the firstborn sons of all who lived in Egypt. And you think, what was the sign that made the angel pass over the house? Do you remember what it was? The blood of the lamb. They saw the blood of the lamb and it would pass over the house. What's so called the Passover. And what would have happened to the Israelites if, that, if they had not applied the sign in faith? Do you think that they deserved God's wrath any less than the Egyptians? Of course they deserved God's wrath. They deserved it just as much. They were just as sinful and guilty as the Egyptians were. But aren't you grateful that God provided a way? It points forward to the cross. Jesus, the lamb who was slain. You'd read that Exodus stuff. Remember we said the Old Testament says somebody's coming. Somebody's coming. That Passover event, we take the blood of the lamb, we paint it on the doorpost, we, we, we apply it in faith, and we trust that God's going to be faithful to his promise. He said, if you do this, I'm going to pass over the house. And we say, okay, this seems like a really weird thing to do, but we're going to do it. And all of it points forward to Christ. It points forward to the cross. And that's what verse 26 talks about. God handles it all. Did you see here? It says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the what? The justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is just, but God is also the justifier, the one who declares those who are unjust righteous in his sight. He is the one who does that. And it's all because of Christ. Even, there, even that repentance and saving faith is a gift. Even that is a gift. He says, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. What can dead people do? Be dead. Nothing. So even that repentance, even that faith is a gift. It's a gift of God's grace. Some of y'all are going, yeah, right. It's your only hope. You're giving yourself way too much credit. 
Either you're dead in your trespasses and sins or you're not. And that's the bad news, and I know it's offensive because I wrestled with it too. Well, I can't, well, I'm not that bad. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. And I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. And so I have to be, what do we learn in physics, right? An object remains at rest until acted upon by an outside force, correct? Right? We're the dead thing. So what can we do? We remain at rest and dead until what? Acted upon by an outside force. The Holy Spirit. That's how it works. Crazy offensive, but beautifully comforting at the same time, is it not? We who are dead in our trespasses and sins, it's by grace we've been saved. We've been acted upon by an outside force. We're dead and lost in our trespasses and sins. God made the light of the gospel shine upon us. It's amazing when you think about it. Again, I'll go to the mat for that. And so how are we delivered from all of our sin and misery? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And as soon as you add the pronoun I or me to that equation, you've lost it. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Period. God's plan of redemption is not a self-improvement seminar. It is a search and recovery operation. Let me say that again. God's plan of redemption is not a self-improvement seminar. God, Jesus didn't come to make good people better. He came to make dead people live. It is a search and rescue operation. Salvation isn't earned, it is given. Grace isn't merited, it is gifted. And that grace changes absolutely everything. Remember, we talked about what's a working definition of grace. The church is named after it. We might have a working definition of that. Grace is undeserved favor given to an unworthy recipient by an unobligated giver. Unmerited favor given to an unworthy recipient by an unobligated giver. That is grace, and it is a gift, and it is your only hope and mine. We will never truly love and forgive others until we all realize how much love and forgiveness we have received first from God by sheer unmerited grace. I know I harp on this. I get it. I know I harp on this. But many of you still think that God's willingness to bless you depends on your ability to prove yourself first, and that's wrong. It's not the gospel. We don't live the Christian life on parole. We live it under the banner of God's grace and the promise of having been spiritually adopted into his family, that we're united to Christ and we're set free in Christ. It changes absolutely everything. That we're justified by grace alone. That means you don't have to go back and keep proving yourself. What part of it is finished is that not cover? Is this on? <laughs> it gives us a new righteousness that we could never have on our own. What does God's holy law demand? 100% perfection. Who in here has kept that from the day of their birth? I better not see a hand go up. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, God's holy law demands 100% perfection. So what that means is you've got a big problem on your hands that you've got a holy God and you've got a wicked record. That he's righteous and you're not and you've got a big problem. So you need a new righteousness given to you. That's the grace of God. The righteousness of Christ imputed, reckoned, credited to your account because of what he did on the cross. It says that we're justified by his grace as a gift. It's not earned. It's a gift. Is it a gift if you earn it? No, that's called wages. What is the wages? What's the thing that, that the Bible talks about that our wages is? The wages of sin is what? 
death. Okay, that's what we've earned. That's the wages of our sin. What we have actually earned is death. But the free gift of God is the righteousness of Christ that is given to us by grace alone, even to the bad guys. And again, I said the the good news of the gospel is not going to make sense until you see the bad news first. But once you see that bad news and it gets in, like, yeah, I'm the bad one in the story, then the brilliance of the diamond of the gospel starts shining because you get out of the way. And now it's Christ alone, Christ alone. Here's that fastball. What's Dave throw every week? Look to Christ, trust in Christ, rest in Christ every single week. I don't apologize for it. I'm going to do it every week because you and I forget it like that. So we need this new righteousness, don't we? Because we don't have one in ourselves. It's given to us as a gift. And what's that lead to? Second point, very quick, a new relationship. Not just a new righteousness, but a new relationship. This is verses 27 to 31. Let me give you an example. Again, I've probably told this story before, but it's great. In May of 2010, ESPN writer Rick Riley wrote an article about something that amazing that happened between two JV girls softball teams, Roncalli and Marshall High. I believe they were in Illinois. Here's what Riley wrote. He wrote, Roncalli was woman-handling inner-city Marshall community. The game could have been 50 to nothing with no problem, and it's no wonder because this was the first softball game in Marshall history. A middle school trying to move up to include grades 6 through 12. Marshall showed up to the game with five balls, two bats, no helmets, no sliding pads, no cleats, 16 players who'd never played before and a coach who'd never even seen a game. And one Marshall player asked, which one is first based? And another one is, how do I hold this bat? And that's when Roncalli did something crazy. It offered to forfeit. Yes, a team that hadn't lost a game in two and a half years, a team that was going to win in a landslide, purposefully offered to declare defeat. Why? Because Roncalli wanted to spend the two hours teaching the Marshall girls how to get better. The Marshall girls did not want to quit, wrote Roncalli JV coach Jeff Trailer. They were willing to lose a hundred to nothing if it meant that they finished their first game. But Marshall players finally decided if Roncalli was willing to forfeit for them, they should do it themselves. And they decided that maybe this one time losing was actually winning. And that's when the weirdest scene broke out all over the field. Roncalli kids teaching Marshall kids the right batting stance, throwing them soft toss in the outfield, teaching them how to play catch. Even the ump stuck around to watch. That's it. That's it. The story is so amazing because it's so countercultural, isn't it? It's weird to see a team that has every right to run up the score on another team because that's not against the rules, run it up, and then boast about it on the bus ride home. And it's weird to see a team that has every right to do that forfeit that right to serve others. Isn't that weird? Look at verse 27. What then becomes of our boasting? It is, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by a law... Of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You see, no one can boast in how well they kept the law of God. No one can boast in their moral efforts. No one can boast in the success of their self-salvation project. But boy, some of y'all are trying. And you're white-knuckling your way through the Christian life. And then you wonder why you're so bitter. And you live your life with gritted teeth. Because you spend so much time looking down your nose at other people who aren't as good as you, rather than saying, I'm, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. But Jesus has been kind. 
And Jesus has been good. And I'm surrounded by other people who are also the worst, whom Jesus has shown his love to. See, it changes everything. You see, according to Paul, this destroys our attempts to pat ourselves on the back for being so holy and moral compared to others, that we're all just undeserving beggars at the banquet. D.T. Niles famously said, Christianity is just one beggar telling the other beggars where he found the bread. It also eliminates our attempts to exclude others based on a perceived lack of religious performance or a lack of intellect or having a weak prayer life or not being missions-minded enough. Whatever it is, you fill in the blank that you're like, I'm better than this person at fill in the blank. What the gospel does is absolutely destroys all of that. It destroys it. Verse 29, the Jews were boasting in the fact that they were, quote, really God's people, and they tried to exclude the Gentiles who they saw as unclean lawbreakers, even though they were just as guilty of the same transgressions. And that is a shocking thing for Paul to say, given his background, was it not? He said, I kept the law perfectly. But yet, when I can compare it to Christ, it's dung. Look at verse 30. Justification is now by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But Paul in his wisdom clears up one final objection in verse 31, does he not? And the objection is this, if we are not made right by God's law, does that mean that the law doesn't count anymore? No, God's holy standard still applies to every single person. His holy law is still in play. The standard is still there, and all of us will still be judged according to our adherence to God's law. The bar has never and will never be lowered. And so if you are here and you do not know Christ as your Savior, number one, I'm so glad you're here. Really? I really am glad you're here. But the thing you need to reckon with is the fact that God's holy standard still applies, and you will be judged, whether you believe it or not. You will be judged according to God's holy standard, and you will be found lacking. And so I, as a minister in the gospel, plead with you to flee to Christ, to repent of your sin, to turn away from all the ways that you're trying to make yourself right, and to run to Jesus. Please, run to Christ. See the beauty of the gospel. You see, the big difference for Christians is that Jesus gave you his straight A report card, and he died for your straight F report card. Does that mean, so the question then is, are we saved by works? Yes, we are. Just not your own. <laughs> See? Trick question. So are we saved by works? Yes, we are saved by works of another half, and his name is Jesus Christ the righteous, who kept the law's demands. You are saved by his work, not your own. Isn't that the best news ever? That's something to lay your head on at night when you go to sleep. And to say, not to me, O Lord, but to you. I'm grateful that you kept the law's demands for me. And now I am so hidden in Christ. I am so hidden in Christ that when the Father looks at me, he sees his Son. Whoo! That's good stuff. <coughs> Christ fulfilled the law's demands so that you could hear his pardoning voice. He died for your unrighteousness under the law so that you could be declared righteous apart from the law. When the Father sees you, He sees His Son, and that's good news. Let me end with this quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a man whom God called into the ministry. If you want a, just a great thing to do, just go explore the life of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's this little short Welsh guy, ministered in London for years, and God called him out of a very lucrative career as a physician and a doctor. 
He was then called the good doctor from from thenceforth and became a preacher of the gospel. Here's what Lloyd-Jones said. I wish I could, he he would, to make it quite practical, I have a very simple test. That's how he he read it. I'm not going to read it in his voice. To make it quite practical, I have a very simple test. After I have explained the way of Christ to somebody, I say, now are you ready to say that you are a Christian? And they hesitate. And then I say, what's the matter? Why are you hesitating? And so often people say, I don't feel like I'm good enough yet. I don't think I'm ready to say I'm a Christian now. And at once I know that I've been wasting my breath. They're still thinking in terms of themselves. They have to do it. It sounds very modest to say, well, I don't think I'm good enough, but it's a very denial of the faith. The very essence of the Christian faith is to say that he is good enough and I am in him. He's good enough, not you. So, we ask the question, how am, I be to, how am I to be delivered from all my sins and misery? We talked about guilt last week. You're like, Dave, I got it. Okay? This is what makes the grace of God so amazing. We're about to sing a hymn of the faith, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a pretty good person like me, right? I was kind of figuring it out a little bit, but then I figured it out myself. I found it. I found the way myself. No, that's not what the hymn says, is it? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, last week, by me, like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That's what makes the grace of God so amazing. How are we delivered from our sins and miseries? By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, as revealed in the scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. We take ourselves out of the equation. We say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. But you are gracious and kind and merciful to sinners like me. And I have been saved not by any righteousness I have brought to the table. I am saved through Christ. So what's the call? Look to Christ. Rest in Christ. Trust in Christ. Just like last week. Look to Christ, not yourself. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher and perfecter of our faith, that he who began a good work in you will carry that work until the day of completion. Yes, he will. And it's enough that he died for me. That's it. That's the gospel. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you as we consider this gift of love and righteousness that you have given to us. Lord, forgive us for all the ways that we're trying to take credit for it. Even now we're going, yeah, Dave, but no. Help us, O Lord, to just rest in the fact that you have shown your grace and mercy to sinners like us. And Lord, that you never, we are grateful that you never lowered the bar. Lord, your holiness demanded it. But Lord, we are so grateful that you sent your son to come and to live and to to live the perfect law that we could never keep in and of ourselves and to die that atoning death that we could never do so that we could be declared righteous and have a new relationship with you that now we have peace with God through the cross. Lord, in these next few moments as we sing this great hymn of the faith, Amazing Grace, may we dwell upon the words that we're actually singing rather than just throwing it in autopilot. Help us to dwell upon your mercy. Help us to dwell upon your kindness. Help us to dwell upon your undeserved grace towards us. And may that bring joy and life to our hearts because we're looking at Christ and not ourselves. Lord, help us in that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.